This morning's gospel reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to him, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went out among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. This is the word of the Lord. That passage that Janice just read is such a wonderful um, and, and troubling image of watching how Jesus is not accepted by his own tribe, his own people, his own home congregation, if you will. Scholars have looked at this and asked, why did Jesus receive such a skeptical, judgmental reception? Uh, one, of the, one of the writers, one of the scholars says that in this particular gospel, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus is referred to as Mary's son, which back then would have been a scandalous thing to basically say, this Jesus is a bastard. This Jesus has no father, and he's a disgrace. So how can he be so wise? How can God use someone with an illegitimate birth to be the voice of God? Others, scholars, look at the fact that his siblings were all mentioned. And it's also a scandal because it's saying that this eldest brother left home. This eldest brother, who in biblical times was responsible for caring for one's parents, flew the coop, went preaching somewhere, and left his responsibilities. Do you see how they're trying to take him down? He's irresponsible, and he's a bastard. And... He's a carpenter. What, how can God use a carpenter to speak about the scriptures? <clears throat> and so this congregation looks for every opportunity to take Jesus down and to basically say, we can't learn anything from you. And you're not welcome here. And so Jesus you know, recognizes that dynamic, recognizes that 
with, without faithfulness, there's very little he can do. And so he tells his disciples later on, when you get a welcome that's really not a welcome, brush the dust off your sandals and, and go. He's in a prophetic mode up until this point in the gospel, just before this passage that Janice read. Jesus healed the woman with the 12-year bleed. Now, for rabbis to touch a woman, especially if she's bleeding, makes that rabbi impure in the purity codes of the time. Jesus has been healing all sorts of people who are biblically unclean, not fitting in to the social mores of the time, not fitting into the religious culture of the time. And what he is doing is what all prophets do. Prophets are saying, God's love is bigger than you think. God's grace and welcome is much more inclusive than your rules in the religious life. And what he's saying to his home congregation is, yeah, God's bigger than you. God's love is cannot be controlled within the walls of your synagogue or temple or church can happen anywhere. And that makes the religious people very upset because what Jesus is doing is saying, you in the religious world don't control what God is doing. God can do anything God wants, anywhere God wants, with whomever God wants. And that did not make Jesus or the prophets very welcomed just about anywhere. So I went to grade school at Coolidge School in Wyckoff, New Jersey. Let me describe my classroom to you. It may be similar to the classrooms you grew up in. At the very front, we had the, the blackboard, which was green. And we had a big picture of George Washington and another big picture of Abraham Lincoln. Did any of you have that? Mm-hmm. And in between them was this long alphabet in script. And then there was kind of a dinky little American flag poking out, I think, from behind George Washington's picture. And that's the flag we would salute every, every day. I was always impressed, and as an adult, I'm, I'm more impressed with the, the last bit of that phrase, with liberty and justice for all. What a value. What a profound value we Americans have and that we train the next generation to have with liberty and justice for all. So when the Supreme Court decided on marriage equality, in my uh, non-legalistic mind, I thought, well, they're just doing what we've said all our lives, liberty and justice for all. I realized that there are good and faithful people on both sides of that issue, but they were looking at the Constitution, not the Bible. They were looking at the Constitution saying, what are we about? Do we provide certain rights and privileges to some people and not others? So from a purely secular point of view, I think it's a good, a good decision. And I'm, I, I welcome um, your input, and you can tell me on the way out today why I'm wrong. But for the church, this is a significant conversation And because of the Supreme Court's decision, it's going to change the way we talk about it as a church, as United Methodists, and as Christians 
in the West, for sure. You saw that the Episcopal Church this week in their, in their uh, conference, they decided on a liturgy for performing gay weddings. That was adopted overwhelmingly. The United Methodist Church, when we meet in 2016, is going to talk about that and wrestle with that and probably say some unkind things about people we disagree with. And that will pain me because we're all followers of Jesus. We Methodists are are not biblical literalists. We don't look at the scriptures and say what the scripture says, says and end of discussion, because the scriptures are often uh, not very clear. On sexuality issues, there's a few scriptures in the Hebrew scriptures that talk about homosexuality as an abomination. There's also some things in the Hebrew scriptures that say it's an absolute sin to touch and eat shellfish. I take great offense at that because I like shrimp (laughs) and lobster. But if I were really living a biblical life, I would not be eating shrimp or lobster. Uh, I also like throwing the football around. If it's a true pigskin, that's a sin. There's all sorts of sins that are mentioned that we don't even give the time of day to anymore. The Apostle Paul wrote about, um, he used a word in Greek for homosexuality that is the same word for boy prostitution. So we're not quite sure what he was referring to. Was he saying prostituting young boys is wrong or mutually consenting homosexual relationships is wrong? We're not sure because it's the same word in Greek. I think prostitution of any kind is wrong. I'm not sure what Paul meant. So we have to go to Jesus. What did Jesus say about homosexuality? Nothing. He said a lot about greed. (laughs) He said a lot about um, power, selfishness, loving one's neighbor as one loves oneself. He said a lot about non-judgmental life. He said nothing about homosexuality. By the way, he also said a lot about divorce. He was pretty clear on divorce. But we in this church, in our denomination, don't say much about that anymore. I think we've realized that sometimes divorce for various reasons is a sad and regrettable reality. But good and faithful people can be divorced. Good and faithful people can be married. Good and faithful people can be single. Good and faithful people can be divorced, widowed, celibate, all of which God can use to help us grow closer to Christ, to be more like Christ. The United Methodist Church believes in um, the Wesley Quadrilateral to look at an issue such as homosexuality and to see what does our scriptures say, but not just scripture, what does our tradition say? What does our reason say? Because God gave us a mind to reason with. What does our experience tell us? I have some friends of mine who are gay and lesbian who are deeply faithful followers of Jesus. And the fruits of the Spirit flow through them so clearly. My experience says, well, how can God not be blessing them in their faithfulness, in their following of Jesus? I see the fruits of Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness flowing through them as openly gay and lesbian followers of Jesus. 
that has changed my mind because I grew up in a church and where you know homosexuality wasn't talked about and it certainly wasn't condoned. But in my experience and in my reason, I'm realizing, oh, God's bigger than that. God continues to show me new ways that God is at work and it confounds sometimes the churches that raised us. I just read this week, I, I don't, I'm surprised that I didn't know about this earlier in all the conversations I've had with people who are much more prophetic than I am on this issue. Do you know there's a Yale historian history professor at Yale, named John Richard Boswell. Anybody heard of him or had him? He wrote, same-sex unions in pre-modern Europe. So if we're looking at our tradition, followers of Jesus, in the fourth century, there were two saints named St. Serge and St. Bacchus who married one another in a committed Christian relationship with a priest officiating. In fact, Have any of you been to the St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt? It's one of the oldest monasteries with some absolutely exquisite books, libraries, and icons. There's an icon of St. Serge and St. Bacchus getting married, and Jesus himself is the officiant. It's, It's remarkable. I just saw that picture this week. I'd never seen it before. There are texts in the 10th century. I want to get this right. 10th and 11th Greek church, Greek Orthodox church, there's an office of same-sex union where a priest would officiate at a a same-sex union just like any other wedding. The two men, I think it was mostly men at that time, would join hands. The priest would wrap his stole around them, say a blessing, um, have the Eucharist, serve both men the Eucharist, then serve the congregation Eucharist. It sounds just like another wedding. But there's an actual service from the 10th and 11th century called the Office of Same-Sex Union. In the 11th and 12th century, I just learned from this Yale historian, there's an order of uniting two men from the Slavonic tradition, the Russian Orthodox tradition, which is a fiercely conservative uh, expression of Christian faith. But in the 11th and 12th century, there was an order to bless same-sex unions and marriages in the church. That's a surprise to me. I didn't know that was part of our Christian tradition, but it is. It was not mainline. It was not mainstream. But it was on on the margins. That was happening. The United Methodist Church, we're still figuring this out. Every four years we get together and we... we pray, we... we worship, we have debates. And... For the last 20 years, we've been debating homosexuality and sometimes thoughtfully, most often not very thoughtfully. And we speak out of both sides of our mouth as a denomination. Now keep in mind, our denomination, praise God, is a global denomination. There's about 8 million United Methodists in this country. There's about a million United Methodists in the Ivory Coast, in Africa. So... When we get together and have these debates, as I understand in Africa, homosexuality is not a debate. It's not even a conversation. In fact, it's anathema to brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Africa. And they can't believe that we United Methodists in this country are having such a conversation about this. Well, they have representative vote from the Ivory Coast 
at our every four-year general conference. That does change the numbers on how we vote on homosexuality. And the GLBTQ community in this country looks at the United Methodist Church and thinks, oh, we're, we're so far behind the times. We're so exclusive. We're so judgmental. I can understand why they feel that. Because right now in our book of discipline, it says people who are gay and lesbian are people of sacred worth. Yes. Out of the same book, it says homosexuality is not compatible with Christian teaching. And it outlaws pastors from officiating at gay weddings. And it outlaws churches, local churches, from hosting a gay wedding. And it has pained me to say to people I have known for decades, I am so sorry, I cannot officiate at your wedding. And and someday you'll have to forgive me. And someday in our church, I do trust, we will have a very public confession that says, I am... I am, we are, so sorry, we didn't get it. We excluded you in the GLBT community and we, we are sorry. Someday we will say that as United Methodists because that's, that's where we're headed. I don't know if it'll be in 2016 where we acknowledge that or 2020, but that day is coming because most United Methodists in this country believe in an inclusive church. Um, in the global community, we don't have that majority. But we're split, and there are good and faithful followers of Jesus who believe both sides of that issue. And I trust that in our own congregation here in Chatham, we have good and faithful followers of Jesus who are on both sides of that. And we can agree to to disagree. But I want to lift up the idea of Christian marriage as a good thing, as something that God can use to bring us closer to being Christ-like. You know, that's the purpose of Christian marriage. It's not to do the bidding of the state, although we do, and we fill out those carbon copies of the wedding certificate. We're really doing the bidding of the state, and we send those records to Trenton. But for Christians to be married in a Christian service is to say, Christ, we want you to be a part of our marriage. Christ, we want you to be the one who gives us more love because there are times when the tank is running on fumes and we're running on empty and we need more love. And that can only come through God. For Christians, it comes through Christ. And so I want to lift up Christian marriage as a good thing that I would not want to exclude anybody from. If people want to get married in Christ and have Christ be the center of their committed relationship, I don't want to say no to them. Because I know it works. I know Christ delights in committed, monogamous relationships. And Christian marriage is a significant commitment that can change the way we are as human beings. When we make a commitment to another human being, in the eyes of God, in the presence of God, with God's blessings, what we're saying is we're going to stick it out through thick and thin with this person. And that frees us up to be real. It frees us up even to be goofy and silly at times because we know our partner is not going to walk. We've made this commitment together. It allows us to be vulnerable together and honest together, 
That delights God. And God delights when we can be that honest with another human being. It may be the only human being in the world we can be that honest and vulnerable with because we have made a commitment with Christ in the church. Christian marriage is a good and wonderful thing that God uses. Now, God certainly can use other avenues to grow us and mature us and to deepen us in our relationship with Christ. We do not have to be married for that to happen. But I do know that it is one good and viable way that has been entrusted to the Christian church, and I am grateful for that. I long for the day when I will be able to do premarital counseling with people who are homosexual or heterosexual, who really want to make a commitment to Christ with each other. I long for that day. I long for the day when we as a church can support people who have made a Christian commitment to be married together. When they go through a difficult time, we can come alongside of them and say, you can do this. Married folks who have been married for decades can say, let us tell you about the landscape. We might even be able to model what long-term relationships look like. Now, I also know some gay and lesbian people who have been in a committed relationship for 30, 40, 50 years. <laughs> They're good models, too, of what it is to stick it out. Because two people, two human beings, don't always agree with each other. We don't see eye to eye with each other. And the challenge is how do we work through that together? You know, Jesus never said that our call is to be right. Husbands, wives, partners, we don't have to be right. In fact, we can't be right and have a good relationship. Jesus did call us to be loving. Jesus did call us to be forgiving. Jesus did call us to be merciful and to treat one another as we would like to be treated. That Jesus was very clear about in our marriages and in every relationship we're in. In some ways, we as Christians, when we make a commitment to, at least in this congregation, how many of you were confirmed in this congregation? A couple of you. Okay. Keep your hands up. Look behind you. There are some older people than you might realize. Yeah, people of every age were confirmed in this church. I'm just guessing it was people from their teenage years to their 70s and 80s. I'm not going to ask for how old you are. When we joined this church, we made a commitment to surround each other with a community of love and forgiveness. I don't know anyone else, I don't know any other institution that makes a commitment to surround each other with a community of love and forgiveness. We became part of a covenant when we joined the church, even if we were 12 or 13 and we didn't realize what we were getting into. We made a commitment to each other. And the commitment is in some ways similar to the commitment that married folks make to each other, to stick it out. We won't always agree with each other, but we will love each other in the name of Jesus, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. 
This is who we are. And God has called us to be the church and to love in the name of Jesus. May it be so for you, for me, and for the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. Amen.